1997, at the age of 39, I either had a midlife crisis or made a decision to avoid one. I left a successful career in corporate America and jumped into the nonprofit sector as the executive director at GLAAD, a prominent gay rights organization. I've not talked much to others who made the move, but boy, do I get asked about my decision-making process a lot. Now more than ever. As more folks hit their 50s and 60s and realize, if not now, then when? They want to know everything. Why did I do it? How did I get myself ready? What was it like when I got there? Like it was some kind of alien planet. I wondered how others in my shoes answered these questions, and so I found Bill Abrams. Bill made his leap from corporate America nearly a decade ago to a remarkable organization called Trickle Up. Under his leadership, Trickle Up has helped more than 100,000 women start businesses, with benefits reaching a half a million people in Africa, India, and Central America. He joined Trickle Up after a very successful career in entertainment, with great runs at the New York Times, ABC, and the Wall Street Journal. Today, Bill shares his story and pay close attention to the power of what he refers to as his burning bush moment. Bill will tell you what he's learned and share what he's proud of. He will share with you his best program decision and will tell you the only book you need to read if you're considering a career in nonprofit. Bill really planned for his transition to a great new low-paying job, and he'll share the plan. He'll also tell you the biggest mistake you can make in an interview. The nonprofit sector is lucky to have Bill, and so are we. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Bill Abrams, what an impressive organization Trickle Up is. I'm really delighted that you're joining me today. Well, it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to share my experience going from the for-profit world to the nonprofit world with others. With others. Excellent. So I also want to encourage folks to learn more about Trickle Up at your really first-rate website at www.trickleup.org. It's clear. It's clean. The messaging is terrific. And frankly, it's very uncommon for nonprofits, as I discussed on a recent podcast that I did with Sean Gibbons at the Communications Network. So you should definitely visit their site, learn more, and be impressed with how a website should actually be done. Um, Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, Bill, you and I are kindred spirits. We had careers in the entertainment business and then made this kind of dramatic transition to the nonprofit space with quite a lot of implications. And I can't tell you how often folks ask me about that transition as they consider it for themselves. So you were a senior executive in entertainment news with a gig as the president of New York Television, New York Times Television. What motivated you to leave? Uh, my journey began when the New York Times made the very wise decision to get out of the television business. <laughs> uh, while we did terrific programming, won every award that they give in broadcast journalism, uh, it's a difficult business for anyone, and the Times needed to double down on its print franchise. So uh, there I was with my future in front of me, and everything changed with a single phone call. A friend of mine who runs a nonprofit here in the city called uh, BRC, Bowery Residence Committee, that works with homeless, uh -huh. called me about two days after the final decision was made at the Times, and he said, sorry to hear about your job. Have you ever thought about going to work in the nonprofit sector? And I said, I said, no. Uh, <laughs> and then he proceeded to kind of lay out a vision 
of how my skills would be applicable, how I might be able to find a job, uh, and how I would find that very, very satisfying at that point in my life and my career after having worked for three outstanding news organizations, Wall Street Journal, ABC News, New York Times. So my journey began with a single phone call. Yeah, my journey began with a single comment that I made sitting on my couch um, when I had found out that the uh, executive director job was open at GLAAD, which is a large gay rights organization. And I literally said to my wife, you know, somebody like me ought to apply for a job like that. And she said, you know, then somebody like you should. So it's an it's interesting how there are just moments. And you had never considered a nonprofit gig before. No, I'd been a volunteer. I you know wrote a check where I could be helpful. Uh, the biggest volunteer or nonprofit job I'd ever had was as the board chair at my synagogue in New York, a uh, small synagogue, 250 families, about a million dollar budget. And once I kind of got this vision, I always describe it as my burning bush moment. And I began <laughs> to get some outstanding advice from a woman named Belinda Plutz, who does career coaching and career counseling. Uh, and, and she helped me think about this in a very different way. Uh, one of the, the many wise pieces of advice she gave me as we started to look at resume and how I presented myself, and she said, you actually should turn down the volume knob a little bit on your, the New York Times part of your resume and turn up the volume of the Village Temple. And I was surprised because I know the New York Times, oh my God, how distinguished can you get? Uh, and she said, no, because look at what you've done. You've obviously had board experience. You've, you've uh, managed, uh, helped to manage a large budget and a staff and so on. So all of the skills that you've gotten in that nonprofit work, uh, that volunteer work, are very applicable. Uh, the rest is just a question of size and how many zeros in the budget or how many people on the payroll. But that's a very important experience. And she was right. And so how um, did you find Trickle Up or did they find you? Well, it, again, Belinda, my coach, uh, one of one of my early exercises, she said, well, mission is very important. So what kind of mission would really speak to you? Because that's the fuel that, that motivates people uh, in nonprofits. So what really matters to you? Go home and think about that and come back in a week and we'll talk about that. So I came back and I said, well, there are two mission areas. One would be to work in a New York City nonprofit because the city's been very good to me since I've lived here. And I didn't. I didn't want to travel. We'd been doing a lot of global co-productions at New York Times Television, so I was missing my kids' school plays and that kind of thing. And then I said, the other mission that, that appeals to me, even though I have zero, zero experience, is global poverty. And just things I was reading made me think, okay, obviously this is a huge need. But what really uh, struck me was that there, was, uh, there were a lot of practical solutions close at hand. Uh, uh, five-hour bed nets, microcredit. There wasn't a lot that had to be invented. It was more about how to get it out there. And you, and you had done your homework to learn about that stuff, or is that stuff that you already had been following and caring about? You know, I guess I'd been following in a sort of casual, read the New York Times uh, every day kind of way, but I had never really drilled into it. Right. Uh, and, and even though that violated my no-travel rule and I had set for myself, <laughs> uh, I said this would be... Uh, this is something I want to pursue. The other influence, I guess, and, and I realized this after the fact, is uh, over the years I had become a very devoted reader of Nicholas Kristof the New York Times, who covers global poverty and all these issues uh, in a way that no one else does. And I'd gotten to know Nick a little bit when I was at the Times. And, and I realized how much he had opened my eyes and, and opened my thinking. Um, so I kind of set these two avenues. Um, 
And then um, I found my way to trickle up specifically because there was a, a woman, Marilyn Maklowitz, uh, who's an executive recruiter who I had known a very little bit. We reconnected. Uh, and I just kind of get reintroduced <clears throat> sort of way. And then she called me about three months later. And she said, I want to tell you about the best kept secret in New York nonprofits. It's called Trickle <laughs> Up. They help women uh, start businesses as a way out of poverty. They've been around at that point for uh, 25 or 26 years. And they're really looking to build the next uh, generation of the organization, the next generation of leadership. Uh, are you interested? So how can you not be interested in an organization that's focused on women, that's focused on global poverty, that had a time-tested solution um, and was willing to uh, think a little bit more broadly in terms of leadership and, and look outside the nonprofit leadership space. So uh, two questions from basically from what you talked about. When you had your burning bush moment, had you had you closed the door to corporate America? Had you said, yep, this is my new path and this is the road I'm going to travel down? Or was this... I'm going to travel down this path, and I'm also going to keep my options open if a corporate job comes along. Excellent question. Now, once I kind of fixed on grabbed the burning bush, uh, if that's not a tortured metaphor, uh, I said, all right, if I'm going to go at this, I have to go at it in a very single-minded kind of way. Uh, so I kind of made a rule for myself that if a headhunter from the media world called, I would take the call, but I wouldn't do anything uh, at my own initiative. So I didn't, I left the door a tiny bit open. I only went on one uh, meeting and, and cause I felt like it's a very deep personal decision. Your commitment to it uh, means a lot and, and you have to be committed to it. Uh, you have to be single-minded about it. If you're not, then I don't think you'll be as effective in your search. And I think your ambivalence will radiate, radiate out uh, consciously or unconsciously uh, to people uh, you'll be interviewing with. And one thing that is an almost certain turnoff for anybody who's trying to make this change from the corporate world to the nonprofit world is if the individual from the nonprofit world uh, feels any hint of being patronizing or being unsure, uh, you're toast. So you really, it's you have to look deep inside yourself. I, at the same time, I, I did some financial planning because I knew if I was going to go down this road, I would earn less. Uh, I used to get a nice bonus to the New York Times, things right. like that. That was all going to be over. So uh, I really had to, and this is a serious thing, and I talked to a lot of people who want to make this change. They said, well, go home, look at your finances, think about your future needs. I still had kids to go through college and so forth. Yep. Uh, and unfortunately, I was in a position that I could afford to earn uh, uh, less than half of what I had been earning and, and still make that work. Um, and I told my children, well, I hope uh, if I do this uh, and one day when they're reading the will and there's less there than there might have been, you're going to feel very good about what I did with these remaining years of my career. So um, uh, so they will get a kind of psychic uh, legacy as well as uh, um, a few bucks. It is one of the things that I never and I did not think about was the psychic legacy. And I actually think there is... Uh, in the you know, what is it the Mastercard language? It's priceless, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. So, okay, so Marilyn Makowitz calls you and says, "Are you are you interested in this job, where you're the, the where you're going to be, you know, working with global in the global poverty space, focused specifically on women? You had no real nonprofit management uh, experience, and you weren't a woman." 
Yes. <laughs> uh, how'd that work? Uh, worked out great. Here I am, town and a half years later. Right. So the board uh, obviously seemed to think that I could bring uh, kind of some leadership skills and strategic skills, management skills, and that uh, a lot of my work, in particularly in the documentary world, was fundamentally about sales. So sales and fundraising are almost identical. Um, so they didn't hire me because I was an expert in global poverty. Uh, I've learned a few things along the way, but I've really only made two significant uh, program-related decisions in, in over 10 years, and that was uh, hiring two uh, vice presidents for program uh, who had deep, deep experience in this around the world and had really grown up in this field, uh, and then generally leaving them alone. Now, they may disagree with that last part, but, but you know, I, I, it was important to be clear about where I was adding value uh, and where I wouldn't, and you can't do everything. So, you know, the idea of as I started in the job, where am I going to focus my energies? Um, and, and fortunately, uh, I made two brilliant hires. Uh, our first v the, the position was vacant when I came. The first VP of programs, uh, Susanna Hopkins, did a great job and knew she was going to stay for about five years and then had some other life plans. And then uh, her her successor, Joya Sarkar, who's with us today, um, likewise. And each was sort of the right person for the time. So I've really, really, really been lucky uh, or maybe smart um, in hiring great, great talent to run the program side of, of Trickle Up. I'm going to make a statement that... It's not just lucky and it's not just smart. A little bit of both plus, you also were trained through an entire career to be a good manager, to run things, to evaluate prospective hires and make good hires. You had a lot of experience in that arena that had to serve you well in recognizing that people are your biggest asset. And as Jim Collins says, you have to, in order to be effective, you've got to get the right people on the bus. And then you've got to get them in the right seats and you have to get the wrong people off the bus. Correct. So I'm glad you mentioned Jim Collins, who I think is brilliant and who I think is uh, good to great in the social sectors in 36 pages, uh, is is the best book about nonprofit management. It is the only book you have to read. I'm staring at a big stack of them on my bookshelf, and I hand them out to everybody, board members. I, staff. Said, yep, I, said, I send them to my clients every year. I said, this is the, if you want to understand how I think, you need to read this book. Um, and, um, and, and so absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the luck comment is interesting. When I was in college and I was talking to the career counselor about, I don't remember what, but I said something about luck and he kind of pulled me up short and he said, there's no such thing as luck. You make your luck. Um, and that was very wise advice. You know, there's just, you get in the way of, of, of opportunities. So, uh, you know, there, there definitely were things that, I had done and worked on and accomplished <clears throat> in my earlier career that um, uh, made me qualified uh, to do this job. I, maybe the lucky part was that that particular phone call uh, with my friend Muzzy. So that was that was let's say that was serendipity. And yep. I guess I was ready for it. There you go. All right. So um, can you help listeners understand, compare and contrast the for profit organization? and the non-for-profit organizations? How are they similar and how are they different? Well, I probably could talk two or three hours on that subject, but I guess a couple of, of and one day I'm gonna to try to write about that, but um, uh, 
They're more alike than different because the principles of running any organization uh, are fundamental. As you said, hiring great people, having strong systems, uh, paying a lot of attention to finances, uh, always being willing to sort of look at your program or your product and say, how can I make it better? This notion of continuous improvement. Uh, how do I keep up with the world that's changing around me and now it's changing faster than ever? Uh, and and so those things, uh, you know, how do you lead? Those things are universal. Uh, what's different is clearly the sense of mission um, is is higher or stronger in the nonprofit world. I work mostly in journalism, so there's a very strong sense of mission, but in a for-profit context, but people are motivated by by the power of the press. So yep. it's not that people who work in the for-profit world are without mission, but it's definitely stronger and more intense. And uh, that matters in a number of ways. Uh, one is in, in Peter Drucker, who wrote so wisely about uh, nonprofit uh, work, yep. uh, said, you know, in a nonprofit world, so that mission and that sense of dedication uh, uh, gives people, staff, more currency in decision-making. So kind of top-down, hierarchical, authoritarian decision-making doesn't work as effectively in the nonprofit world. Uh, you know, people are very outspoken. They're very smart. Um, they're generally earning less than they would if they were in the for-profit sector. So that kind of gives them some currency mm -hmm. uh, uh, within in decision-making in the organization. And, and I will say, though, I think that the general trend in the corporate world as well, is is more participatory, less of that top-down uh, authoritarian style of management and the whole notion of teams and a lot of the ideas that are very current in, in management circles, leadership circles, are Agreed. very consistent with the way that nonprofits work. Agreed. Um, obviously, in a nonprofit, you, you, the, you know, you, you, you keep score differently. There's no profit. There's still budgets and finances, but there's no profit. So, and, and sometimes your end product or your outcome, your impact is harder to measure. It's not like we sold <clears throat> so many units of whatever our product is or the program we put on television last night got a certain Nielsen rating. So it's, it's harder but not impossible and just as important to measure results. Yeah, I think you actually, and that's why I liked your website, is I thought you did a very nice job of articulating success metrics in a way that a lot of organizations do not. Yeah, it's, it's very important. Um, question about this issue of currency. Uh, if you're a big fan of the Jim Collins social sector monograph, you know that he talks about power coming from all around you. Mm -hmm. And I really like that metaphor very much. And But it is a delicate balance, isn't it? Because currency isn't it's power, but a different kind of power, right? So your staff comes, the, your staff comes, they make less money, but they expect more of a voice and mm -hmm. threading that needle between voice and authority is hard sometimes. Yes, it is. And we're, we're working on that. We probably <laughs> went uh, a little too far in the direction of consensus and participatory decision-making and, and um, you know, you definitely want to hear all voices and hear all perspectives. That leads you to a wiser place. But at the end of the day, uh, it's hard to make actual collective decisions. You yep. want your decisions to be informed by collective wisdom. You want to know that 
the people who have to execute them, uh, who in our case might be in India or Burkina Faso or Guatemala, it's going to work for them. So you want to be careful not to make a decision which looks brilliant uh, in New York City but falls apart uh, in a rural village in India. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to be decisive. You've got to move ahead. Uh, you've got to be willing. You've got to be comfortable with uh, uh, dissent and different points of view. So I don't necessarily expect that everyone will agree with a decision, management decision we've made. But I hope that they feel it was done fairly, objectively, listening to people, looking at evidence, and not simply the, the whim of, of someone who happens to have a president or vice president title. Totally. Just for the benefit of the listeners, how many staff members do you have and what's your annual budget? Our annual budget is about $4 million, and we have uh, 45 staff, uh, 17 in New York, and the balance in our three regional offices in Guatemala, Burkina Faso, and India. Great. Um, what did you, uh, did you find anything hard or challenging when you made the switch, other than the, uh, <laughs> the aforementioned decrease in uh, salary? Oh, the salary wasn't hard at all, because I'd already kind of like figured that out. So I made peace with that. What was difficult was... I had to learn a whole new area, um, and and so that took time. And I look back at things that you know, things I said or did that are, you know, I'm red faced at my naivete. Uh, and I've learned more about management and leading in my ten years of leadership here than I did in whatever twenty plus years of leadership and management in the private sector. I've had to kind of think about it more, I read about it more, I'm working hard to be a better leader and, and manager. Uh, I think humility is so important. Yeah. I mean, it's important in life, but it's especially important um, in this work. Yeah, I agree with that, totally. We are talking with Bill Abrams, the president of a remarkable nonprofit called Trickle Up. Founded in 1979, Trickle Up is a global leader in economic development for women living in the deepest levels of poverty. It provides business training, seed capital grants, and saving support to people living in extreme poverty in West Africa, India, and Central America. And Bill joined Trickle Up in 2005 from a career in corporate America where he was at the New York Times as the president of its TV division. Bill, what do you believe you have um, seen and what do you sort of what do you believe is the profile of the corporate person who will be most successful in the for-profit space in the not-for-profit space? So that's an interesting question because we just hired someone two weeks ago who came to us from a thirty-year career in the the finance world, uh, and and so in that way it was an unusual hire. It's for a finance and operations finance administration position, and uh, what impressed me about her was. It was a very clear narrative throughout her whole life of commitment to mission and commitment to international work. She happened to grow up, uh, her father worked for USAID, so she'd grown up in places like Pakistan and Cyprus. And in her, uh, some of her vacation time, she did uh, humanitarian uh, uh, missionary work, Habitat for Humanity, working in some medical, medical clinics and things. Uh, and then after she made a decision two years ago to go in this other direction. She had a lot of clarity about that, and she invested a great deal in the transition. She took a number of courses, and there are a number of programs and organizations out there. Robinhood has a program, yep. uh, Encore, 
so she really put in the time in the sweat equity to gain the skills and kind of uh, be ready for this. And, and that just so impressed me and, and my colleagues. And it was different. I meet a lot of people who have had a great career in the corporate world. And then one reason or another, uh, they want to make a change. And they kind of have, you know, they have an epiphany. I want to get back now. And that's great. And that's really admirable. Uh, but what I'm really looking for is some proof that yes. they uh, understand the world we work in. They understand the challenges of working in a nonprofit. Uh, they're committed to it in the way that our staff is committed and and make uh, uh, you know financial sacrifices. And the work is hard. And there's never enough resources. And you go to places where it's easy to get sick and, and scary things can happen. Uh, so I need to know that it's more than just an idea or an inspiration, however noble that might be. Right. Uh, so people should be thinking about, if they ever think they might want to do this, what can I do now, volunteering, getting on boards, whatever, uh, to both uh, demonstrate my commitment and, most importantly, to, to learn and to serve. So not everybody has to work in the nonprofit world uh, to help improve the world in whatever mission area uh, appeals to you most. So what can you do today uh, it will make a difference in the world and might at some point, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road, uh, position you for this sort of a career. Don't wait till, uh, don't wake up when you're 52 years old as I was and decide uh, you want to go in a different direction. The uh, One of the lessons that I learned while I was running a nonprofit organization is that the vast majority of people who did not work out as staff people in my organization, and when I left, I had a staff of about 45. Was mm-hmm. They were not people that did not, let's avoid the double negative. They had the skills to do the job, but they had somehow or another either had sort of come for the wrong reason. And I believe that's something you really have to suss out in an interview process. And I think your point about your finance person, well, I hope everybody took notes on that who's thinking about making the shift because you've got to come because you believe, right? You've got to come because the work matters, because giving back is something that feels non-negotiable to you. And it's, uh, and I, and I feel that more and more people who are now in their fifties or early sixties and are either cashing out or looking for some way to make a difference in the world. There are lots of ways to do that. Being a staff member at a nonprofit is only one of those. Correct. But it's, I think the other point, you know, you, ha- you have to both talk the talk and walk the walk. So, uh, you know, you've got, it, part of it is interior, you've got to be committed and, and clear-eyed and clear-headed about things. Uh, but you've got to demonstrate your intentions. It's not just enough to have intentions. Uh, show me the evidence of your intentions. That's what I'm looking for. So evidence. Good segue to this question. Evidence, uh, a moment of pride, a moment where you said, I made such a good move here. This was the right move for me. Something you're very proud of that happened at Trickle Up, or was there a, a different kind of burning bush moment for you? Oh, wow. Every day every day is inspirational, but, but no day is more inspirational than the opportunity I have once or twice a year to go to India, to go to Guatemala, go to West Africa and meet the women we're helping. I was in India. I just came back a few weeks ago and um, met one woman who had, uh, had had graduated from Trickle. She started in 2012. She was sort of done, but she was still part of the savings group that we helped form and uh, sitting under a tree in a very, very poor 
uh, kind of parched area and talking with the women. And then this woman said, could I introduce you to my sons? Of course. She brings out her two sons and introduces me to the oldest who had just finished high school uh, and was about to go to college. Now, that was historic in that village. Very few kids go to college, and the younger brother was in eighth grade. Uh, hopefully, he will get there, too. So that was it was overwhelming because then I could, you see, and the real dividends, the real payoff of Trickle Up is that next generation that has more opportunity to go to school, that's better fed and better nutrition. Um, and and that was just enormous. So that, um, and every time I go in the field, I get a, you have a moment like that or a snapshot or an anecdote. We have lots of data. I could talk all day long about data, but it's those little memorable moments you meet uh, one of my very first trips in honduras and a woman who had a small uh, uh snack uh this like a little cart basically at a local clinic and she used to carry her her inventory every day a mile in this wheelbarrow back to her house and then to the clinic where she set up her stand and on the top of her her uh wheelbarrow with her stuff the chips and the drinks and so on was a white box from a bakery and i said well what's that she said well today is my son's 12th birthday and for the first time in my life or in his life, I've been able to buy him a birthday cake uh, at a bakery. Oh. And that's just so profound. Oh, my goodness. That is this really goosebump stuff. And, and so that's it. It's the goosebump stuff um, that's, that, that is, that's what it's all about. And, and you know, and, and so for me, you know, and I've met hundreds of women. Uh, we've helped thousands in the time, that, and, and every story, and the idea that with uh, really very modest inputs that Trickle Up provides, we can unleash this tremendous human potential that women have, because they all want the same thing. They all want a better life for their children, uh, and they're always the real heroes or heroines of the story. It's not Trickle Up. We provide some important inputs, but it's their own resourcefulness, their own energy, their own desire uh, that really makes this work. And so all we are are catalysts, very important ones, uh, to help women change their own lives. And, and that's just so powerful. Well, I also think what I heard in that is the power of touching and feeling the work is, it's it's the payoff. It's And I, I can't tell you how many clients I work with, either boards or staff, who spend so much time in their office on the administrative side of their work that they lose touch with the, with the uh, with the with the work itself and um, mm -hmm. you can't ultimately be as effective a fundraiser or a manager working with your board unless that work is comes to life for you on a very very regular basis you know i sit here and i think there's a whole list of questions I still want to ask you, but we're out of time. I want to ask you about the board. I want to ask you about fundraising. So I, I might just have to invite you back for a part two. But for today, we are um, sadly out of time. Um, Bill Abrams, uh, it is abundantly clear that your burning bush moment was a gift to um, uh, uh, thousands and thousands of women all across the world. And um, for that, they and we are most grateful. Thank you so much for what you do and for joining us. Thank you for this opportunity to share my little bit of experience, and hopefully it's been helpful to people and inspired people and given them some good advice, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, and, and don't lose sight of that book, because I think there's somebody ought to write the book, and uh, it seems to me you're as, you're as good a candidate as any. 
So um, thanks again to Bill. And um, if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, you can always find us and uh, leave us a rating or a review um, so that more people find us and know about the podcast we're doing. And also for nonprofit listeners out there, you can always join us as a subscriber to my blog at jo- joangary.com. That's G-A-R-R-Y.com, where we provide weekly insights on a whole host of topics. This week we are... Uh, We have a blog up that is about what's going on in the UK and financial instability and how it interacts with your ability to raise the necessary resources for your organization. So join us there. Join us with our our biweekly podcasts. And I look forward to talking with you next time. Thank you. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.